Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. I'm your Huckleberry. Buenos dias. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are here to discuss two awesome movies. Three. Three awesome movies. Three awesome movies that involve cowboys, not many Indians, but... Uh, Mexican Indians, you son of a... <laughs> <laughs> you keep calling me names. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Does this mean we are not friends? If I thought we were not friends, I could not bear it. <laughs> it's going to be a quote fest. My God. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. We are here to discuss Tombstone versus Young Guns 1 and Young Guns 2. We'll probably have a ranking at the end. I know I've got my top one in mind. The finishers for second and third place are going to be up in the air for me. But Okay. You remember watching these movies for the first time? Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, VHS Party. As soon as Young Guns came out, I picked mm-hmm. it up on VHS. I've watched it a thousand times. Yeah. Young Guns 2, same thing. I picked up the CD, and then I picked up the VHS tape. <laughs> and then uh, Tombstone was kind of getting... I don't think we were quite in the DVD era, for me at least, yeah. at that time. But I had it on VHS, and I watched all three of these all the time. Yeah, these were definitely VHS movies for me. And I Young Guns was kind of that same... I was experiencing that at the same time that I was experiencing the Die Hard, you know, phase. Like okay. it was like, okay, these these are my movies right now. Uh-huh. And so I don't really remember how I saw that one first, but I remember when the second one came out, a buddy of mine had seen it and I was like, did you like it? And he goes, I think it was better than the first. I was like, oh, dang. And I went, I agreed with him. I thought it, I thought the second one was better than the first one. You're giving your final judgment already. No, that's how I felt when I was like 13, man. I mean, that's... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. I was 30 years ago, all right? The the Bon Jovi stuff pushed it over the top for you. Well, it was a big factor. I didn't (laughs) deny that. Not as that Blaze of Glory was a killer song. And then I've got a fantastic burned in my, you know, wonderful childhood memories of a snowball fight that occurred between me and my friends after we saw the movie tombstone where the quotes were just flying you know the, the snowballs were flying and the quotes were flying too with them as well that's fantastic yeah that's, I, I love that i'm your huckleberry and then you know daisy you know daisy <laughs> <laughs> law don't go around here mr law <laughs> i heard you the first time <laughs> <laughs> All right, so enough about us. Should we jump in? Let's jump back in time to the year 1881. You're so drunk, you can't hit nothing. In fact, you're probably seeing double. I have two guns, one for each of you. We are on the day after the anniversary of the shootout at the OK Corral. 140 years ago, yesterday, Wyatt Earp and his brothers went to go confront the Clantons and McClowries, and it did not go well. 30 bullets, 30 seconds. Yeah, and that's not an exaggeration. If anything, 30 seconds is probably overestimating. It was probably even less than that. It's incredible. And some folks ended up dead. And, you know, why should such a short thing end up in the annals of American history for another 140 years? These kind of big deal shootouts were not like this. Like one gang against another gang just typically didn't happen like this. It was usually one guy against another guy, you know, the old high noon kind of thing. Sure. Um, So that's why it was such a big deal. And then also, it's really 
really a big question at the time, who is in the right? I mean, history is certainly painted a certain way, but the truth is the Clantons and the Clowries, they didn't have any, they didn't have any charges. They weren't criminals. They hadn't gotten anything against them. Whereas the Earps had some stuff on them. Sure. So, but you know, history is a, you know, it's interesting because there were two newspapers in Tombstone Mm -hmm. at the time, you know, the newspaper, we're going to lean on our knowledge on this time period is based a lot on what the newspapers told us. Right. And so journalism was not as I don't know that I would say it was not as anything. The fact <laughs> is, is that journalism was biased. It was either going to be biased. One is, you know, maybe you got biased towards sure. the Earps. Maybe you got biased towards the Cowboys. Maybe you got, we're going to sensationalize this story. So we sell more papers, yes. get more advertising. And maybe, you know, we try to get the truth and we just try to tell the truth as we believe it to be. Well, that's but what I was going to say. That's the way it is now. Well, yes, it is. Yes, it is. One newspaper in Tombstone sided with the Clintons. One side sided with the Earps. Yeah. Hey, you know what else happened in 1881? Um, let me see. Uh, somebody shot somebody, I bet. Pat Garrett shot Billy the Kid in the back. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> Yoo-hoo. I'll make you famous. But yeah, we'll jump on that when we get to Young Guns too. Okay, let's start with Young Guns. It was the first movie made, so let's jump in there. Hey, Chavis, how come they ain't killing us? We're in the spirit world, asshole. They can't see us. Right? Came out August 12th, 1988. Now, I couldn't find very much on how this movie came to be. This was a studio movie, so obviously those things were in play. But yeah, like typically I've got a great story and I don't have a super good story on this one. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you about the writer. Okay. okay. Yeah. So the writer's name was John Fusco. Yes. Plus is, is, because should we say it now? Sure. So at the beginning of this year, John Fusco, the guy who wrote Young Guns and Young Guns 2, right. and Emilio Estevez said, we are developing Young Guns 3. Young Guns 3. They're not young anymore. It's just going to have to be Guns 3. Did you see the movie poster? I did see the movie poster. Did you see how the, the word young was shot up with bullets? Oh, very. So it's just kind of. Very creative. Yes. So, so everybody, it actually, on IMDb, it says, said to be released in August of next year, we have the third part in the Young Guns installment. I am excited to see what they're going to do with it. I don't know with everybody dying, how they, how what can they, they do. possibly. And I mean, everybody's 30 something years older. I, what, what? How do you do it? I don't know how you do it. The ma- how does the math work here? Well, how does the fact that most of them died work? Well, I guess maybe they broached the fact that some of them didn't really die. I mean, Charlie didn't really die when they had him die. Charlie, Chavez, Doc. Doc. None of them died when they say they died in the movie. So maybe that's it. Maybe that's the big reveal, huh? At the beginning of the movie. Hey, turns out nobody's really dead. Wow. And that's- they're still avenging John Tunstall. If you guys need us to help out with the script, you can reach us at ShirleyPodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> that's right. right. That's right. Okay. So John Fusco was born in Connecticut. He actually was a musician. He left high school and decided to travel the American South as a blues musician and blue collar worker. He was trying to find some great old blues songs so he could do the Led Zeppelin thing, I guess, steal some blues songs and make them some rock songs. Wait a minute. He packed up his guitar (laughs) and he just took off. Yeah. And so he traveled around for a while. He ended up 
being a part of a band. In 79, he joined and toured with the Dixie Road Ducks from Northern Virginia, but soon he left both of those and went to school to pursue screenwriting. Okay. He went to NYU and he had writing mentors that you, a couple of them you're going to recognize, Waldo Salt, Ring Lardner Jr., and Lorenzo Simple. Really? Yep. He ended up winning back-to-back honors in the National Screenwriting Competition in his junior and senior year. He won the top prize, which was a Nissan Sentra. So that's pretty cool. (laughs) Um, And he got a contract with the William Morris Agency. And his thesis became the movie that I've talked about before, the other Ralph Macchio movie of the 80s, Crossroads, of course, about blues in the South. I got to watch this movie. I've never seen Crossroads. Oh my gosh, you do need to I pride myself on being like an 80s movie guru, but I've never seen that one. It's like... It's like Devil Went Down to Georgia 80s style. It really is. It's good. It's such a good movie. You got to check it out. So anyway, the final scene of Crossroads is a battle of guitar playing that takes place in hell. Okay. Interesting. There you go. Okay. Keep going. And so then he wrote Young Guns. I do, that's all I've got. I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, I can't find anything else. I don't know how Christopher Kane was picked to direct it, but we can talk about Emilio Estevez. He's part of the Brat Pack. He had done The Outsiders. He had done Breakfast, Breakfast Club. Club. He had done a movie called That Was Then, This Is Now uh-huh. with Christopher Kane. Yeah. And that may have been how he got hooked on because it seemed like Emilio Estevez was kind of a driving force on this, although he wasn't the first one that they wanted to play the part. They wanted Sean Penn as Billy the Kid. Not crazy? That'd have been a different movie. Listen, Emilio Estevez may not be the greatest actor that ever walked down the street, yeah. but he is a perfect Billy the Kid. You know why Sean Penn didn't get the job, right? No, why? He's in jail for punching out a photographer. Is that right? <laughs> too busy, uh, too busy being married to Madonna at that yeah, time. Yeah, I guess so. I wow, guess so. for defending her honor. Yeah, I remember those days. Man. Yeah, punched yeah. out a photographer. Before we get into cast too far, yeah. I just listen. We are doing historical movies today. Okay, we're not college professors. We are just two guys uh, with well. Work. I mean, you are. Oh. Well, you are. Oh yes, I am. Oh, that's right. It's me. <laughs> I can't I always forget which one of us is which. <laughs> if you want a really good podcast on Billy the Kid, Chris Wimmer does two infamous great ones. Yeah. America. He Inf- does Infamous America and Legends of the Old West. And they are fantastic. They are really good, man. And our friend Dan Lefebvre has had him as a guest on his two episodes on these movies, the Tombstone episode yep. and the Young Guns episode. They just covered Young Guns One, not Young Guns Two. But check those out if you want an abbreviated version of what Chris has to offer and then check out his podcast for sure. So I'm just going to cover a brief history on these characters. Okay. All right. So we really don't know tons of hard evidence about Billy the Kid. Okay. Probably the most famous Old West outlaw. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably top of the list. Okay. So most people think he was born in in New York City, actually. His birth name was Henry McCarty. Yes. When his mom got married at a young age, she married a guy named Antrim. So he took the name Henry Antrim. Yep. Other aliases, you may know him as William H. Bonney. Uh-huh. Which I thought this was interesting. So his whole life, he was known as Henry the Kid, right? Right. Billy Bonney. Yeah. And it took a newspaper to finally put the three magic words together. I believe it was the Las Vegas, New Mexico Gazette or something. I can't remember the the actual newspaper. They finally put together Billy the 
Kid. And man, that's a magic title right there. Is, is that incredible? Yeah. Billy the Kid. Yeah. Okay. So he was born in New York City, traveled through Indiana, and they made their way to Wichita, and they ended up in Silver City, New Mexico. There was a silver boom, Silver City. New Mexico. There you go. Right. Billy's mother died from a lung infection at the age of 45. And essentially at that point, he was a teenager. He became an orphan. Mm-hmm. Fell in quickly with the bad crowd, as teenagers often do. Yep. Was arrested early, I think 1875, for stealing laundry from a clothesline. Stealing from a Chinaman as well. Clark Kent got away with it. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Right. So because he was friends with the sheriff's son. Okay. Right. Yeah. And we, as parents do this, sometimes you watch after your kid and because <laughs> your kid is hanging with this other kid, you want to make sure that kid is on the straight and narrow. Right. So the sheriff brought him in, put him in jail and in essentially a way to scare him straight. Right. Right. Yeah. So Billy wasn't really in as much trouble as he perceived he was. Uh-huh. And so when he was let out for exercise, somebody turned their back. And again, this is not the prison of today, right? right? When you've got to feed prisoners and take care of them, they would just assume you left, right? <laughs> well, somebody turned their back and he shimmied up a chimney and up and over the wall and out and gone. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. So he shimmied up like a little kid, you know, I mean, skinny teenager, yeah. crawled up a chimney and out to freedom, right? <laughs> Reverse Santa Claus. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so again, hanging out with the wrong crowd, stealing horses from soldiers. You know, this is post-Civil War. Mm-hmm. I mean, just post-Civil War. So he's playing cards one night with a guy they called Windy Cahill. Like, yeah. Like blows like the wind, Windy. Yeah. Calling Windy because he liked to tell these long, elaborate stories and everybody <laughs> thought he was full of crap. Yeah. Right. Well, he started giving the kid a hard time and calling him, he called him, we know he called him a pimp and a son of a bitch. Uh-huh. And he was holding him down. They got in a scuffle. Yeah. And he had his knees you, on his- you, You're saying he was hacking on him. He was hacking on him. <laughs> <laughs> so he had him down. He had his knees on his shoulders uh-huh. and was slapping him the, and embarrassing him. This is the Wendy slapping Billy the Kid. Wendy slapping Billy the Kid, uh-huh. who is- like 17 at this moment. Okay. And so what happens? He gets a hold of a pistol somehow and shoots this guy and he commits his first murder. Right. Self-defense, probably. Yeah. Once again, he takes off, probably probably gets cleared in self-defense, but you know, you're young, you're 17, you're like, crap, I just shot a guy, I'm gone. Right. Okay. So fair fight, Sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> so he takes off. That happened in Arizona. He he bails on Arizona, goes to New Mexico. Uh-huh. Okay. So when he arrives in New Mexico, it's right as the Lincoln Wars are getting ready to happen. So the Lincoln Wars, I'll throw in with this. All right. So you've got John John Tunstall, you've got Alex McSween, yep. and you've got the Murphy Dolan gang. Yes. Right. Jack Palance is Murphy. You don't really see Dolan. You get him like a little glimpse of him in the back. But the truth is a little bit different than what we see in the movie. For one, John Tunstall was like 23 years old. He was younger than Doc. He was younger than than Charlie. He was younger. Yeah. He was younger than everybody except for Billy the Kid. So he wasn't like this old mentor. He was a guy from England who had come across to make his fortune. And he happens to run into Alex McSween. It's a fascinating story. So they are in Santa Fe, New Mexico in a hotel restaurant. Yeah. And he overhears Alex McSween saying the words that, boy, if somebody really had some grit, they could go down to Lincoln County and make 
a lot of money running cattle and, you know, competing against the Murphy Dolan gang. Now, Alex McSween had been the attorney for the Murphy Dolan gang. Yes. Like, so he, he was like, oh, well, yeah, I can help out because I know all the ins and outs of their organization. I can tell you in today's world, that will get you in big trouble as a lawyer. Yeah. But back then, I guess it just, it was what it was. So he knew the secrets of the Murphy Dolan gang. He knew how crooked they were. And he was like, I would like to get someone who's a decent person in charge here and taken over this thing. And I know how their game works so I can help you out. So it was really him that was kind of pushing John Tunstall into doing this. John Tussle had some family money. Yeah. And he did have some fortitude. Yeah. Right. He he had the balls to go against the Murphy Dolan game. Yeah. And he was quoted as saying that he wanted 50 cents of every dollar spent in New Mexico. <laughs> so John Tussle, it wasn't that he wasn't ambitious or even greedy. Right. He just wasn't willing to murder people. Right. He would take up arms and he would defend and that sort of thing, which was different than McSween. McSween was anti-violence completely. Like he, which is, you know, ironic that he would be gunned down in the front yard of his house while his house was burning. Tunstall was one who would, who would take up the fight, but wasn't one to go instigate. Yes. So it is interesting before we really go any further, almost everybody, at least the main people Mm -hmm. are based on real people in Young Guns and Tombstone. Yeah. The, the historical accuracy of these movies, given that they are really good and Hollywood movies, right. is really pretty impressive. It is impressive. I mean, the fact is, there are just some really cool things going on back in the 1880s, and we we got the benefit of being able to uh, capture it via Hollywood. Okay, guys, we're going to take a brief break. We're coming to you with our Shirley Showcase. We have a special Patreon member who is joining us today to tell us her opinion on one of our prior episodes. Yeah, she's a Torontonian. Her name is Addie, and this is what she has to say. Hey, guys, this is Addie from Toronto, Ontario, and I really love your podcast. So thank you for asking me to be a part of it. This is really exciting. I've listened to your podcast for a few weeks now, maybe a month, but I really love it. I listen to it every week. It's a great way to break up the workday. It gives me a little bit of joy in an otherwise boring workday. So thank you guys for that. Your podcast is just kind of really chill and fun, and I love listening to you guys talk. You guys are very knowledgeable and funny, and it sounds like listening to two old friends sit around and talk and laugh and it just gives you a really good feeling so i really love your podcast so keep doing what you're doing so i've chosen your bill and ted episodes both of them because i have to talk about all three movies and yeah i just love those movies so much they're near and dear to my heart i got into excellent adventure when i was about 15 16 which was 2005 2006 so kind of way after the movies came out but they're still nostalgic to me and remind me of being a teenager i love them so much i made my friend in high school dress up as bill and me as ted because that's how much I love the movies and still one of my favorite Halloween costumes of all time. I don't know how I'm going to pick. It's impossible to rank these movies because they're all so good. I love them so much. Um, Excellent Adventure obviously is where we meet Bill and Ted and you meet these two lovable characters who are just pure fun and they're sweet and they're nice and they just want to have a good time. They're not like those typical rebellious rage against the machine, rage against the man rocker dudes. They just want to have a good time. They want to make music. They're vibing. They're chilling. They're just living their life and they also have to save the world. So I guess there's a little bit of conflict there. And it's just a fun time. And then you have Bogus Journey, which to me, I think, while it is a complete departure 
from Excellent Adventure. I think they take the formula from Excellent Adventure, change it into something completely different, while also remaining true to them, which I don't know if that makes any sense, and I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion, but I do love Bogus Journey. I love William Sadler as death. He is absolutely hilarious, and I also love God Gave Rock and Roll to You, one of the greatest songs, and forever will remind me of Bill and Ted. And then you have Face the Music, which honestly I think is fun, nostalgic, it was a good throwback, it was completely for the fans, and I think it was a great way to close off the trilogy. I think Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves did an amazing job, and they just brought Bill and Ted back to life while finally closing off their story in a satisfactory way, and I just loved it. And that's it. I mean, as for my ranking, I think I can only rank them in the way they came out, as one, two, and three, but they're all so good, and it really is truly impossible to rank them. But yeah, I guess the only appropriate way to end this is to say, be excellent to each other, and party on, dudes. Thank you guys for everything you do. I can't wait to listen to more. Okay, awesome. I love it. I love that she's she called us fun and chill. I like fun. I like <laughs> chill. I like being described as such. It is good. We really, really appreciate the warm words that you had for us. Addy, thank you very much. I think it's awesome that somebody so young likes these 80s and 90s movies that we love. I know. It sounds like she was born in like the late 80s and still is digging on the stuff that we grew up with. It's totally awesome. I know. It's fantastic. Addy, thank you so much. We love hearing from you. Looking forward to interacting with you in the future. And guys, if you want to be an executive producer like Addy, be sure and check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Shirley podcast. You can be a Patreon member for as little as five bucks a month and get some maybe cool prizes if you go up from there. So definitely check that out. Thanks, Addy. All right, let's get back to it. So, yes, William H. Bonney actually lived. Jose Chavez E. Chavez, real person. Josiah Doc Skurlock, real person. Charlie Beaudry. Dirty Steve even was a real person with a real name. Yep. Okay. So when Billy arrives in Lincoln County, the Murphy Dolan store is the most powerful thing. Okay. They actually have a deal with the army. Mm-hmm. Remember, this is Civil War, just after the Civil War, and they are running everything. So Tunstall McSween came to town to put him out of business. Guess what? That's not going to be very popular. A lot don't fly around here. <laughs> Get ready for hell. Yes. So, like the movie, Murphy Dolan assassinated John Tunstall. Yeah. New Year's Day. New Year's Day. And the group of young men, it's not this father-son relationship. Right. Or no. even teacher-student relationship. Right. It's boss. You and know, regulators. Regulators. I mean, they were already the regulators. Yes. We work for Mr. Tunstall as regulators. We regulate any stealing of his property. We're damn good, too. Mr. Tunstall's got a soft spot for runaways, derelicts, vagrant types. But you can't be any geek off the street. Gotta be handy with the steal, if you know what I mean, or you keep. It's just, after that happened, they became the deputized regulators. Gotta be handy with the steal, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to talk about that line. I know we I can't wait to talk about that. So after his death, the regulators got warrants and instead of like arresting people, they used it as like hunting licenses. Like, yeah, we're gonna go kill these guys. And and speaking about historical accuracy, Dick Brewer was really like, no, we need to arrest these guys. We don't need to just gun them down. And Billy and basically everybody else was like, nope, we're taking these guys out. They killed our boss. We're taking them out. That great scene in Young Guns where they catch Baker and Martin, they mm-hmm. actually capture them. 
yeah. at the at the river bend. Yes. Okay? We don't really know exactly what happened at that moment. Right. Three guys ended up dead. Baker. Yep. McCloskey. Yep. And Martin. Right. And McCloskey was the guy who had been deputized with them as one of the regulators. But Billy, we don't know what happened. But in the movie, Billy says he's a traitor. I know he's a traitor because he had been with the Murphy Dolan gang. Oh, yeah. And you see him, you know, shoot the guy in the forehead point blank. It's pretty, it's intense too. Yeah. I saw that. I saw what you did. Yeah. What'd he do? What'd he do? <laughs> he knows what he did. That scene when he, he blows that guy at the back of his head out, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They used a, a little squib. Yeah. And ground hamburger meat. <sighs> Gruesome murder. Yes. And so later on in the movie, when Alex McSween gets shot, they don't use any squibs because they're afraid it's going to be rated R. Oh, yeah. No, worse. Yeah. Like they were, there was so much blood that they thought they were not going to get any. No kids watching this movie. <laughs> okay. So over to Tombstone. Over to Tombstone. You tell them I'm coming and hell's coming with me. You hear? Hell's coming with me. Over to Tombstone. So again, we've got, I'll start with our writer again, because from what I've read, he is really the guy behind why this movie was so good. Okay. He's a, his name's Kevin Jari. He started out as an actor on like Flipper, like as a kid. Really? Yeah. He was, he was, a, he was one of the actors on Flipper, um, but he was totally into old West and civil war history, huge historical you know, just dove into that. And so he decided to start writing things. And one of the first things, one of the first screenwriting jobs that he has is with a movie that you and I both have talked about before. Okay. Rambo, First Blood Part Two. Oh, yeah. But Rambo. Right. But when we talked about it, it wasn't Kevin Jarry who had written it. It was. Yeah, it was James Cameron. Exactly. And so I was like, what? Okay. And then even when I had read about James Cameron's script, Sylvester Stallone was like, yeah, no, none of that was actually James Cameron's stuff. I pretty much did all of that. So it sounds like Kevin Jarry wrote something and then James Cameron tried to make that better. And then Sylvester Stallone said, this is still crap and, and redid the whole thing anyway. That's kind of his M.O., but yes. Yeah. But interestingly, the director on Rambo First Blood Part Two yes. is George Cosmatos. Yes. Who will come up here in just a little bit, yes. right? Right. So he, who, who who directed Tombstone? That's a good question. That is a good question. And we will get to that in just a minute. Okay. Okay. So Kevin Jari then does another script for this movie called Glory, which ends up being a huge Success, historically accurate and a huge success. It's like the breakout movie for Denzel Washington. It made Matthew Broderick a real actor instead of just one of the kid actors. I mean, it was really well received. And so he's kind of riding that ladder up. And so he's like, okay, the next movie I want to do is Dracula. Really? Yeah. What? Yeah. He's like, I really want to get it right. I want to get as much historically accurate as I can. And so he's like, he's diving into the history of Vlad the Imperial. Taylor. He's going to Transylvania. He spends years developing this script. And I think he meets Winona Ryder at some point. He's like, hey, I think you'd be great in this movie that I'm writing right now about Dracula. Whoa. And she's like, oh, that sounds great. And then later on, she says something to Francis Ford Coppola, who's like, oh, no, don't be in that one. Be in the one that I'm making. 
Oh. And so they, and this is something that happens a lot in Hollywood. They will make two movies about the same event at the same time. And it's really a race to the box office. Does that sound familiar right now? Yeah, it absolutely happened with Tombstone. Yeah, exactly. We had Tombstone come out and then what, like six months later, Wyatt Earp came out? Yeah, Wyatt Earp with Kevin Costner and Dennis Quaid as Doc Hollywood. Yeah, Doc Hollywood. (laughs) Uh, Doc, Doc, <laughs> Doc Hollywood is a great movie. I can't believe it's one of that. Michael J. Fox's <laughs> finest performances. I think I liked it best when he said, "You're a daisy if you do." <laughs> Doc Holiday. Yes, my thank gosh, you. thank you very much. Um, so, uh, what podcast am I on? Here? <laughs> and so he is devastated, right? Like the the Francis Ford Coppola is making Dracula, and basically the studio says, "Sorry, we're pulling the plug." I mean, he was in like middle Europe at the time doing research, and they're oh. like, "We're pulling the plug." And so, like years of his time down the drain. That sucks. Man. So he comes back devastated, but he rallies says, okay, I'm going to do an Old West script. That's what I want to do. Right. And I want to do it right. I want to get it historically accurate. And so he enlists the help of a guy named Jeff Morey and another guy named Jim Dunham. All right. He's like, I want to get this as close to right as I can. And again, spends months, years getting this script developed. And while he's talking, Jim Dunham says to him, he says, Hey, I don't know if you've read the Walter Noble Burns book called Tombstone, but if you're going to cover the confrontation scene between Doc Holliday and Johnny Ringo, be sure to use the line, I'm your Huckleberry. That's my game. Okay. So that line came from the book Tombstone by Walter Noble Burns. Interesting. Yeah. So then later, Kevin asked Jeff, he's like, you know, I'm trying to find the motivation on these guys. I can get the facts, but I'm not sure about the motivation. And I can't figure out why Wyatt liked Doc. And Jeff said, I think it's because he made him laugh. I think that's genius. Oh, yeah. Val Kimmer's performance is Doc Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> As yeah. Doc Holliday yes. is phenomenal. Why, Ike? Whatever do you mean? Maybe poker's just not your game, Ike. I know. Let's have a spelling contest. And Absolutely. he's hilarious. Absolutely, yes. I mean, he he makes you laugh. He's saying things in this deadpan way, without a smile, and he's hysterical. If you haven't seen, have you seen the documentary called Val? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's fantastic. And in fact, I went back after watching that documentary, I watched Tombstone and The Doors mm-hmm. and Top Gun. I oh, mean, yeah. his range is amazing. Yeah, it's a tragedy. So another guy who's of importance. This is this is some good stuff here. That you remember the character Texas Jack Vermillion? He's the guy with like the longer hair when the yeah. okay. So that actor's name is Peter Shereko. Okay. Yeah. But he's also a Western historian. Like they stuck him in this part, oh, but really awesome. he's more he's more a behind the scenes kind of guy. And so his job was to get the guns for all of the characters. And so, like they because of what happened with Dracula, Kevin Jari didn't want anybody to know what kind of script he was working on because he didn't want anybody to come in and steal it out from under him again. Like Kevin Costner? Exactly. Okay. And so he's like keeping things secret, but he has to, you know, get things from different people. He's looking for guns in the situation. And finally, he gives Peter Shereko an idea of that they're making a movie about the shootout at the OK Corral. 
right? Okay. He's like, I need the guns for these guys. And he's like, okay, no problem. I know that Doc Holliday carried a seven and a half inch Colt and Kevin Jar is like, uh, no, it's too big. It's like, I thought you said you want to be historically accurate. He goes, I do, but I also want him to be able to twirl the gun a little bit. And that's too big. Right. And he's like, okay. Um, well, that was also Ringo's gun. He's like, oh yeah, I want Ringo to do a lot of twirling. So can you change both of those to like <laughs> a four and a three quarter inch or something like that? He's like, all right, fine. That's what we do. And so that's what they end up with is a shorter gun so they can do their fancy twirling. Right. And then it happens again. Like he's like, okay, well, what's, what gun is Sheriff Behan going to have? He's like, listen, he was a dapper guy. I think that probably he's going to get the most recent gun that's out there for sheriffs at the time since he's a sheriff. And there was this four inch sheriff's model. Model. And Jerry again says, no, I want him to have like a dainty gun. I want like those tiny guns. He's like, fine. So he goes to this place in Orange County called Little John's, which has the old West guns, you know, like the high end guns yeah. that you can get. And the guy, John, the Little John's John is like, hey, we're got, we've got an auction coming up. You should check it out. I think there'd be some stuff you'd be interested in. He's like, okay. He's like, here's the catalog. He starts flipping through the catalog. They have the original Behan gun, like the actual gun that Sheriff Behan owned is coming up for auction. And it's the exact model that Peter Shereko was trying to convince Kevin Jarry to use. So he's like, I need to take this. And he drives all the way back to Jarry's house and he just holds it open for him in front of him. And Jarry's like, okay, we can use that gun. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So. Who did, we've touched it already. You know who Kevin Jarry wanted to play Wyatt Earp? Kevin Costner. Yeah. That's what, I mean, what happened with that thing? Okay. So Costner had been in Silverado in 85, which is, I mean, you look at the eighties, there are very few Western movies that are any quality, right? But Silverado is one of them. And it was Kevin Costner's breakout performance. Right. And then obviously he ends up doing very well in the genre later on. He moves on to baseball. Well, but I mean, he's still, he's got open range. He's got dances with wolves. I mean, it's, he's, he's good at doing the cowboy stuff. He is. It's baseballs and cowboys. <laughs> baseballs and cowboys. <laughs> it reminds me when he shows up to one of the producer's house, he's, he's in the bomber jacket and the baseball cap. And he's supposed to be talking about a Wyatt Earp script. And all he's got is a bottle of Stoli vodka. He's like, please tell me you guys have some orange juice. <laughs> and all he did was sit there and make screwdrivers all day. They didn't talk <laughs> script at all. Uh, sidebar. Anyway, so he calls up Kevin Costner, and there are a lot of conflicting stories about how this actually all played out. But the clear thing is that Kevin Costner says, no, no, thank you. Right. What we get from both Kevin Costner and from Kevin Jari is Kevin Costner had already been working on a script. He had this idea for like a big mini series about Wyatt Earp's life. And so he was like, I don't want to do this. I want to do mine. Mine's good. And yours is okay. Right. Which he also said he didn't read it. So it didn't really make any sense. But anyway, he's out. Before you move on from Kevin Costner, go ahead. you know what role Kevin Costner stole from Kurt Russell? Yes. We've talked about it in our previous episode on Bull Durham versus Major League. I find that fascinating. Kurt Russell really wanted the part of Crash Davis in Bull Durham. Right. Kevin Costner took it. Right. Kurt Russell was a professional baseball player. I know. I know. (laughs) And he did get the part. Kevin Costner was not the best player in his high school team. Right. And so you got to think that there's some satisfaction. Kurt Russell taking over this movie and, and just... Killing Kevin Costner at the movie theater. Apparently, the it was house. apparently on the set. There were two things you didn't talk about in front of Kurt Russell. One was Machine Rain, 
And the other was Kev Costner. Really? <laughs> yeah. Now they ended up doing uh, whatever. 3,000 Miles to Graceland. Yeah, exactly. How about that? I, they made up, I guess. You know, I became drinking buddies or whatever. We bury the hatchet. So Kevin Jari has written this epic, awesome, historically accurate script, and he is slated to direct. Okay. Okay. So this, this is interesting. We're getting into it now. Right. So he's picking out people, right? One of the actors that gets the script is a guy that we've talked about also, Michael Bean. Yeah. And so he, Michael Bean's like, I would like to be Doc Holliday, please, because that looks like an awesome part. Right. And they're like, okay, we'll let him know. And they're like, uh, okay, Val Kilmer is probably going to do that. And he's like, well, crap. Okay. I'm not. Uh, oh, wait. The guy who Val Kilmer is against, the guy who Doc Holliday is against, Johnny Ringo. Can I have that part? And they're like, yeah, you can. You can have that part. Okay. So he meets with Kevin Jari. And this is interesting. Kevin Jari tells him that, like, this is like a piece that he's writing for his girlfriend, Lisa Zane. Like, He's like, I want her to be Josie. Or she was in some movies with Rob Lowe and James Spader. She was kind of, you know, on the fringe of being somebody interesting. Okay. But he wanted her to be play the part of Josie, Josie. in this one. Josie. Right. Yeah. So he tells that to Michael Bean. Michael Bean's like, Yeah, this is great. This guy's got passion about the script. I'm excited to be a part of it. And he ends up riding to Tucson with Powers Booth. And he says, Powers Booth is hilarious. Just told stories the whole time, told about how uh, when they were shooting Extreme Prejudice, he lost a weekend with Nick Nolte. And when, <laughs> when he says that, he's like, I was, it was Friday afternoon. I was going to his trailer to say bye, you know. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye. And, <laughs> well, bye. <laughs> and he says, and the next thing that I knew, it was Monday morning. They were knocking on the trailer door, getting us up ready to go to the film again. Why does that not surprise me at all? So Michael Bean arrives at the reading, right? They are all there in Tucson to do the reading together. He's pretty much the whole cast is there. And he says he and Val Kilmer are sizing each other up from the get-go, right? Yeah. But he says, I had not taken the time or hadn't found the time to learn the correct pronunciation of the Latin. Right. He said, Val not only knew how to pronounce it, he knew what it all meant. Uh-huh. And he was like, yeah, I'm losing this battle. And like, as soon as he has that thought, somebody projectile vomits all over the table and the reading is over. He's <laughs> like, okay, got some time to catch up here. <laughs> So at the beginning, Kurt Russell is saying, hey, this is a great script, but it's too long. We need to cut 20 pages of this. And Kevin Jari was like, no, we're not going to cut it. I've got this. This is my dream piece. This is my whole life. I'm not going to let this happen. Right. And what ends up happening is Kevin Jari is making like this John Ford-esque, super long, stately and slow, old kind of Western. Right. And it sucks. Yeah. He's doing these long shots. And I mean, not only long in time, but like far away. So you don't have coverage. You can't do good. You don't have your editing options to do this. And so that's frustrating the producers. And then he is being like my way or the highway to everybody, cast and crew. And he's a first time director. This is the first movie he's ever directed. And he's like, hey, Kurt Russell. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> you can go to hell. <laughs> you can think sorry and shove it up. 
after like four weeks, everybody is despising Kevin Jari. And Michael Bean says like four weeks in, I pull into my trailer. I'm like, listen, dude, filmmaking is a collaborative art, right? You can't just yeah not listen to everybody. But he said it was too late. Fired him on Friday. And so the last thing that he sees is Kevin Jari with like this soul crushing look on his face in the hotel with his bags packed out the door. Oh, man. That's fascinating, though. I've never heard that story. So your original question, who directed it? Well, once this is done, they don't even know if the movie is going to keep going or not, right? They've right. been shooting for four weeks. They decide they're not going to use any of Kevin Jarry's shots. They're going to start basically over from scratch. And so Kurt Russell and one of the producers named uh, Jim Jacks, they get together and start working on the script and they cut out the 20 pages. And Kurt Russell has said, what I did to maintain the script and still cut out these huge chunks was to cut my own part. Yeah. That's interesting. But like Robert Burke, he was fifth built. Like he was billed above Bill Paxton and Sam Elliott. What? Yeah. But you don't hear any lines from him because they cut all of those parts. And so that became a little bit strange. They brought in the guy we talked about a little while ago, George Cosmatos. Uh-huh. Well, people just said he was a jackass. Okay. Like he was overbearing. They actually had to pay, like the studio had to pay $40,000 in fines because of his abusive conduct. <laughs> Michael Bean said he saw, he saw this happen. Like when they were shooting the opening wedding party scene. Yes. Cosmatos says to one of the Hispanic extras standing next to Michael Bean, tell that Mexican with the big tits to take two steps forward. (laughs) (laughs) And this guy got in trouble? What are you talking about? I know, right? Yeah. And he says, what has been said that is true is that he didn't really direct this. Michael Bean said he had said three words to the guy. He said hello to him at the beginning. And at the end, he said, off. Like it was not a good relationship that this guy had with the cast, but Kurt Russell was really the guy doing the stuff. If you look at the Wikipedia page, you're not going to get this information. What you're going to get from Wikipedia was I'm quoting here. He, the new director brought a demanding and hard nosed sensibility. Um, Yeah, no, he didn't. This is fascinating. He was a jerk. I really wanted you to say that Michael Bean, his last two words were, well, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so when posed with the question to Michael Bean, he was like, did Kurt Russell really direct this? And yeah. Michael Bean said, well, he didn't direct me. And I don't mean that insensitively. I'm not saying he's a bad guy. He would, the film wouldn't have happened, but for him getting involved and taking over and leading. Right. He said, but he understood that we were all quality actors and he let us do our job. And that's how this movie got made. <laughs> The cast of Tombstone is really, I mean, super strong. It's top notch. I mean, you got Kurt Russell. Yep. You got Val Kilmer. Yep. You got Powers Booth and Michael Bean. Yep. You've got Dana Delaney. Yep. You've got Stephen Lang, underrated bad guy. Bill Paxton, Sam Elliott, Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston. Charlton freaking Heston. Oh, Johnny Ringo had a scene with Charlton Heston's character, Henry Hooker, but it was filmed by Kevin Jari, so they had to cut it. Well, I've got some names for you. Okay. okay? Yeah. So the cast is phenomenal. Right. I mean, the Earp brothers, I mean, Kurt Russell, Bill Paxton, Sam Elliott. Yeah. I mean, I believe that those guys would walk down and and club me with the, the heel of their gun, you know? Absolutely. All right. So one of the original thoughts about casting Doc Holliday. Yeah. 
William Defoe. That would have been an entire. How about that? That would have been. You know why he didn't get it? No. Because Buena Vista was too scared because he had just kind of recently been in Last Temptation of Christ. Mm -hmm. For those of you who haven't seen that or don't remember that, that was very controversial movie about the life of Jesus. Yep. Right. Mickey Rourke was discussed to play Johnny Ringo. Okay. At that time, I could see it. Yeah, maybe. Robert Mitchum uh-huh. was supposed to be old man Clinton, like the Robert Mitchum. Right. Well, Robert Mitchum was the one that had done the narrating, right? Well, yeah, he the, was. That was him narrating the beginning. Well, the reason why he's the narrator and yeah. not in it is because he fell off the horse and broke his back. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, and also, longtime Western actor Glenn Ford was supposed to be Marshall White. Hmm. Glenn Ford, I mean, you talk about that would have been something. I mean, that have been Robert something. Mitchum and Glenn Ford and yeah. Charlton Heston, the cast, freaking unbelievable. But I wanted to point out Michael Bean and Bill Paxton had been in The Lords of Discipline together. Yeah. And they had also been in Terminator. This is, I'm, I'm going to tell the story now. This is actually the fifth movie that they were in together. Fifth. Yeah. He said, but Michael Bean said it was weird. They would faction off. Like the Earps, the guy, the actors playing the Earps would go do their own thing, and the actors playing the Cowboys would go do their own. Like they, they they form their own cliques. He's like, I've been in this five movies with Bill Paxton, and we barely spoke the entire time. Like we had dinner one night and ended it early. That's crazy, man. That's crazy. But I, I mean, I can see it. Like the, I can see the camaraderie of the Cowboys. I can see the brotherly love of the Earps. That. Something to it, you know, hang out with the people that you're supposed to be close with in the movie to create that bond. It's kind of like the the greasers and the socials, (laughs) right? The jets and the shark. (laughs) So those five movies are Lords of Discipline. Yeah. Terminator. Yeah. Aliens. Flashback to our Aliens episode. Yeah. Navy Seals. Yeah. And Tombstone. Yeah. Boom. All right. You ready to talk cast on Young Guns? So before we move on to the casting of Young Guns and Young Guns 2, I got a couple of interesting cast members for you. Are you ready for this? Yeah, yeah. So the part of Billy Claiborne in Tombstone, played by Wyatt Earp III. (laughs) And I know you don't know this because I asked you beforehand. Yes. Ed, Ed Bailey, the guy at the beginning. Yes. Why Ed? Does this mean we are not friends? Yeah. Played by Mr. Frank Stallone. I did not even recognize him. I know, right? I saw that and I was like, who who was Frank Stallone in this? And I'm like, him? I'm like, oh my gosh. If you, you know, take away the feathered hair and you stick a mustache on, put a yes. little derby hat on. I, when you, as soon as you said that, I'm like, absolutely it is. Great part. Yes. It does a great job. Cue the more than over music <laughs> for Frank Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all I got. That's all I got on the cast on Tombstone. We can keep going. All right. I, I will have to say, it's interesting that we just did that and we did not talk about Dana Delaney at all. <laughs> let's, hey, okay. Let's talk about Dana Delaney. Okay. Now, remember, this part was supposed to go to Kevin Jury's girlfriend, Lisa Zane. Obviously, that didn't happen. They they nixed that idea. Okay. You have Kurt Russell. Yep. Val Kilmer. Yep. Charlton Eston. Yeah. Stephen Lang. Powers Booth. Michael Bean. Bill Pax. The cast was outstanding. Yeah. What do you think about Dana Delaney? Uh, so what I, I'm going to, I'm reading, I'm going back to when I texted you. Okay. So, so last night 
at, I'm sorry, this morning (laughs) at 2.05 a.m., I texted you, I'm really thankful for the love story parts of Tombstone so that I know when I can get up to leave and get something to eat or look up something on IMDb. (laughs) (laughs) Awful. The love story, I told you, is really an anchor around the neck of Tombstone. It really is. It doesn't sink the movie, but it drags in those parts. I don't think they have any chemistry at all. I'm in the I'm in the kitchen microwaving and I'm like, oh better look, it's still not over. Oh my <laughs> yeah. gosh. I all got right. I got out on her stage performance. I got out on the accidental meeting as they're riding horses. So I saved myself the agony of that. By the way, we forgot to mention Billy Zane. Yeah. And Jason Priestley. Jason Priestley. What? Yeah. 90210. So Jason Priestley, there's something there. I'm going to touch that real quick since you brought it up. So Jason Priestley was friends with the Cowboys and had gotten deputized by the sheriff, right? Right. Well, his character is Billy Breckenridge. Billy Breckenridge wrote a book about Wyatt Earp. And it was not a flattering book. Like it was the other side and his widow did everything she could to stop it. But it became one of the most famous books about Wyatt Earp. And it was not a rosy colored picture of him. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Back to Dana Delaney. Yes. Sorry. Okay. They gave us nothing with her. You and I talked about. There's no passion at all on this thing. No passion at all. And you've got. A little bit of like sexiness when she's in there taking the photograph. Is there sexiness? You have a little bit of an attempt at sexiness whenever she's in there taking the photograph right before the shootout at the OK Corral. Which let's just talk about. Yeah. To me, that was very interesting. That actually happened. Yeah. Right. Like she's she's in that dark lacy thing. Yes. You, you sent me a picture today. You can look it up on the internet. Yes. You get better look of Josie Earp than you do Dan Delaney. Absolutely. And, and Josie Earp was bringing the heat back then, man. Yeah. For I, a woman. I can see why he was like distracted. What's up? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, sure. So Dan Delaney can be sexy in this movie. Not so much. Nothing. No. Nothing. Okay, guys, we're going to have to stop now. We will come back next week for part two of Tombstone versus Young Guns one and two be sure to tune in hit your subscribe button so that you don't miss the episode when it comes out on tuesday where we get into some of the coolest facts behind these movies when we come back hell's coming with us (laughs) you tell them hell's coming with me